Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. All right, we're going to turn to, and we're going to continue in our series on the book of Mark. So you can turn to Mark 12. We're going to look through uh, verses 13 to 44. We've been talking about the entire book of Mark. We're slowly getting to the point where Jesus is almost at the cross. He's in Jerusalem. He's challenging people in the temple. And this passage that we're looking at is going to be a continuation of his confrontation of the authorities in Jerusalem. Now, before we get into the passage, I want to ask us, how many of us, we, we know the Bible, we know what it says, we know what Christians should believe and should experience, but we struggle to experience it in our day-to-day lives? Like how many of us, even what I just shared earlier, we, we know that Christian life should be joyful, it should be peaceful, it should be hopeful, but oftentimes we see it as burdensome, difficult, and challenging. We see it as a chore rather than a privilege. We see it as a burden rather than a, an opportunity. And many of us, we struggle this with this oftentimes, especially when it's in the context of being challenged and uh, taking steps of faith. Instead of uh, really seeing it as, as a, a step of faith, we see it as what? Something we got to do. We force ourselves to do it. Or maybe we feel pressured by other people and we, we're constantly uh, struggling with that because there's so much peer pressure around us and we're like, oh, you know, I don't really want to do this and God, where are you? And so there's this giant disconnect between what we believe in our heads and what we believe in our hearts. And we're, we're asking God, why, why is this? I go to church. I'm here, right? We're all here at Sunday celebration. Why is it? I'm here. I, I'm trying to read my Bible. I'm trying to pray. I go to life group, but yet there's still this big disconnect. My question for you, and I think the question that the passage has for us today, is, is Jesus simply a, a routine that you participate in, or is he king of your life? I think that's what's going to make the big difference of whether you're on one side or the other, whether you're joyful or you are burdened. Is, is Jesus the king of your life? Does he sit on the throne of your entire life, of your heart and everything that you do? And if he's not, if he's not king of your life, then the way they approach Christianity and your whole spiritual life is going to be totally different. Now, I understand that this idea of Jesus being our king is, many, is very foreign for many of us. Like how many of us, we, 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 we are under a kingdom, a real kingdom with a king? None of us here, unless you, you know, you're part of the commonwealth and you subscribe to King you know, Charles, you know, and his coronation is coming up. Anyone excited for that? Not really. Okay. Not like the queen, right? Everyone's like, the queen is amazing, but who's this guy? I don't know who this guy is. No, none of us, we live in a kingdom, and it's so very difficult for us to imagine what it means to serve a king, and not only a king, but a good king. Because when we think about authorities and we think about the, the rulers in our day and age, it's mostly bad examples, right? We're, we're, we're filled in a world with dictators and strongmen. We're filled in a world where democracy is failing when we thought that democracy was the hope. And we can't imagine having authority, a good authority, that we want to lay our whole lives down for. But that is precisely what Jesus invites us into. He invites us into his kingdom to say, I am going to be the ruler, the authority, the provider, the everything for you in your life. And it's only when you see Jesus as king will all the things in your life, within your Christian life, make sense. And so that's why 
if there was one thing that I could boil this passage down to, it's only when Jesus is king of your life will you be close to the kingdom of God. Only and only when Jesus is king of your life will you be close to the kingdom of God. Mark uh, has this confrontation with uh, this, this group of people, and I, I think he really divides this passage into two parts. And he, and he gives different ways that people try to behave that will prevent them from seeing Jesus as king. The first one is that uh, we try to be right. So he's saying, don't try to be right. The second one is don't try to be great. So we're going to look at how we ought not to be right. We're going to look at verses 13 through 34. I'm going to read it here. And it's a little bit of a longer passage, but let's try to understand what God is saying through this. Verse 13, it says this. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true. Do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, and the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Don't try to be right. Now, we see that there are three groups of people that challenge Jesus' authority. We see the Pharisees and the Herodians, we see the Sadducees, and now we see this one lone scribe. And, and this passage is really an extension of the previous two passages that we looked at in Mark, where Jesus is coming to the temple, and he's confronting the authorities, he's confronting the, the, the rulers and saying, what is it that you've done with this temple? This, this temple was supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of robbers. 
And now the authorities are like offended and they're like, no, we're going to send some people to make Jesus look foolish. And so these three challenges come and we're going to look at them uh, grouped at a time to explain and understand how they were trying to be right. But in trying to be right, Jesus was showing them and exposing their motives and how they were so wrong. The first group is the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees, Herodians, these were all like, I don't know if you want to call them like political parties of Judaism, right? Or religious groups. So, you know, the Pharisees, and, and they believed one certain group of interpretation of the law, and the Herodians had their own take on it, and the Sadducees had their own take of, on it. You could all consider them Jews, but they all had slightly different understandings of what they, that Judaism should look like. Now, the Pharisees and Herodians, they actually differed on a significant amount of, amount of things, but the one thing that united them was Jesus is a threat. They come together to, to challenge Jesus, to challenge him about this idea of taxation. And they use Caesar, and they use a denarius as a way of challenging Jesus. And it's a genius scheme. Because they ask him, like, who should we pay taxes? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Because on one side, if Jesus were to say, yes, you should pay taxes, all of the people who had been following Jesus, who had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, what would they do? They would rebel. Because they believed that Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman government. Now, how could you, as the leader of rebellion, say, yeah, you should pay taxes to the government that I'm about to overthrow? It doesn't make sense. He would lose all of his followers. On the other side, if Jesus said, no, you only ought to pay things, you, you, do, you only ought to pay things to God, what would that cause the Roman authorities to do? They would immediately arrest him, imprison him, and totally shut down his whole ministry. So in the Pharisees and the Herodians' mind, this was like the best case scenario. Whichever way that they, he answers, they got him. He's going to suffer the consequences in his ministry. Everything, he's going to be ruined. He's going to be exposed for the fraud that he is, the Jesus fraud that he is. And the Pharisees and Herodians are going to be what? They're going to be considered right. They're going to be justified. See, look at us. And look at the way that we have exposed him and, and shown him to be wrong. And we are right and correct. Now, the Sadducees, they were doing the very same thing. They were the ones who believed that there's no resurrection. Actually, the Pharisees believed there was a resurrection. The Pharisees were like, no, there's no resurrection. And in many ways, the Sadducees, what they believed was because there's no resurrection, they were very materialistic. And the Sadducees were the ones who were made up of the nobles, of the rulers, of the people who stood in high positions, who had old money, right? Those of you who know old money in Hong Kong, right? They were like the Li Ka Sheng, and, you know, they were like the... They, were, they had it, right? They had old money. And they were the ones who were trying to trap, trap Jesus by asking him this whole convoluted thing about the resurrection, about this woman who had seven husbands. Now, I don't know if you know anyone who's had seven husbands before, but I don't think they were, most likely, most commentators don't suggest that they were actually asking about a real person, but they were using that example to try to trap Jesus. Because they were trying to make Jesus look stupid, because clearly Jesus believed in the resurrection. Throughout his teachings, he's alluded to the resurrection. They were saying, Jesus, how could the resurrection be true? They mentioned this whole uh, law from the book of Leviticus, where it says that if a man dies, and the wife is still alive, and they have not produced any offspring, that their brother needs to marry the wife and produce offspring to carry on the lineage, to carry on the inheritance for that man. So they take up and they create this whole contrived scenario of seven brothers, right? Can you imagine a family having seven brothers? I mean, some of you, you know, can't even imagine having one sibling. You're like, oh my God, it's too many already. Seven brothers, and 
marrying this wife, not producing offspring. And they're like, Jesus, now if there's a resurrection, who are they married? Who is this woman married to? And I don't think they're expecting a real answer. They're saying, Jesus, you're wrong. They're saying, you don't make any sense. Your teaching makes no sense. Our teaching makes more sense because we have this law, we have this scripture, and we found a scenario that exposes how your belief in the resurrection is totally wrong. It doesn't make any sense. It's interesting, and, and I know I'm summarizing, there's a lot more in these passages that we can go into, but it's interesting to see how Jesus responds to both of them. The main thing that he, he exposes of them, for the Pharisees and Herodians, he calls them hypocrites. And for the Sadducees, what does he say? He just says, you're wrong, <laughs> twice. <laughs> he just says, you're wrong. And he uses scripture to prove it. He says, you know, God is God of the living, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And how can, how can God be a, a promise to those people if they are dead? No, there, is, there has to be a resurrection if he is God of those things. It's a, it's a Semitic, it's a Israel, it's a Jewish way of argumentation. And he's saying, you're absolutely wrong. And without getting into the, you know, I don't think Jesus is trying to help us to learn how to do, you know, Jewish argumentation. That's not the point of the passage. You know, Mark is not trying to teach us, oh, if you ever encounter a Jew who challenges you, this is how you respond. I don't think he's trying to, that's not his point. But what is his point? He's trying to expose the attitudes and the motives of these people that are coming to him. Now, if you were going to come and challenge a group of people, let's say you're in debate. Let's say you're trying to share the gospel with one of your colleagues and one of your classmates. And let's say you know that your classmate, your colleague is an atheist. And you know that in atheism, one of their, you know, their, their greatest questions is X, Y, and Z. You know, they're asking about the question of suffering. They're asking about the question of you know, life after death. They're asking about all these hard questions that apologetics go through. What are you going to do? You're going to come and you're going to do your homework. You're going to be like, I'm going to do, do as much research. I'm going to look at the best apologetic answers I can find out before I approach this person because I want to know that if they come back with any of these answers, that I have an answer to come back at them. And so the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, they should have done their homework. They should have come and thought through all the answers that Jesus could have given in order to, to prove him wrong. But in a very simple way, Jesus proves and exposes their motives and shows how wrong they are. And it's so interesting that they don't have an answer to come back at Jesus. And in fact, in one of the verses, uh, we see that in verse 17, they marveled at him. They were like, whoa, we didn't see that. Whoa, we didn't realize that. And there's no response. And the conclusion is that they're hypocritical and wrong. And, and the question for us is, what was their motive in trying to come to Were they having a logical argument? Were they trying to debate the, the merits of theology? Were they, trying to have a, uh, were they trying to discover new knowledge? Were they having an even discussion with Jesus the rabbi and trying to learn more about Judaism and worship of God? No, not at all. Jesus' intention is to show them how their desire to be right and the desire to prove themselves as correct and the desire to show Jesus is wrong so that they could be right is their motive in their heart. And that was the core issue that was Jesus was trying to bring up with them. It wasn't really about the resurrection. It wasn't really about Caesar and the taxes or not. It was about their hearts. 
It was about their desire to be right. It was about their desire to be correct. It was their desire to say and to show, Jesus, I'm better than you. I'm more right than you. I have more knowledge than you. And those are one of the things that really prevents us from seeing Jesus as king of our lives. This, this deep desire for us to prove ourselves as right or correct. I mean, think about it. What are some of the reasons why we want to be right in our day and age? What are some of the reasons why we so strive to be correct? Some of us, we, we, we want to protect ourselves. We want to protect our reputation. Because all throughout our lives, we built our reputation on, I've been this good Christian boy or girl. Right? I did all the VBS. I was best in the memory, ver you know, memory verse quiz time of my youth group. I was president. Uh, I knew all the Bible verses. Right? I, I, I have this reputation of knowing what the correct answer is from growing up in church. And I got to protect that. And I, gotta, I, I somehow got to prove to people that I am this good Christian by knowing the right things, knowing how to say the right answers. That if anyone were to come to me and tell me, like, oh, do you know this? Or how are you following Jesus in this way? I, you could answer correctly. And some of us, we, are, we're, we try so hard to protect that kind of reputation or image. Others of us, we're just, we just can't stand being wrong. We get so defensive anytime someone brings up something with us. We get, we get so insecure because if we're wrong, because our whole worth and whole sense of who we are is based on affirmation from people. Maybe because some of us, we didn't grow up with affirmation. We were never affirmed in terms of who we were based on the things that we did. And so we're constantly clamoring for, I got to be right. I got to do this in order for this person to like me, in order for this person to approve of me. And, and, and it's, not, it's, not just a, it's not just an individual thing. It's a, this is a societal thing. I mean, think about any war that is going on today. There's two sides, and both sides are trying to tell the truth. The truth of why are we in this war? Why are we justified for going into this war? Why are we justified for invading this place or going to this place? We're always trying to justify ourselves. We're always trying to prove ourselves what? Correct. The Bible talks about this kind of Rightness, and he calls it pride, and he warns us about pride in our lives. Proverbs 16, verse 18, this is what it says. It says, pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. He's saying pride leads to destruction. Anytime we, we have this pride, it's going to lead to what? Destruction It's going to lead to falling flat on our face. Even the ancient Greeks knew this, the, the concept of hubris. Right? It was this concept of anytime you have pride, you do things or you promote yourself in some way that as soon as your foundation is taken out from under you, you look so stupid. But the, the, the problem is we, we keep going through this pattern over and over and over again. I was listening to this podcast the other day about parenting. And it's so interesting. I haven't gotten to that age where we really have to discipline Noah quite yet. But this podcast was super interesting because it was about how to discipline your children, and even children understand this. Even from a young age, there's a sense of pride there. And the podcaster was saying, you know, the way that they disciplined their kids was to reconcile. Instead of giving them random punishments to, to whatever, whoever they've wronged, to reconcile that relationship as their quote-unquote punishment. They were describing an instance where the children had really wronged the babysitter. They had just done chaos, and the babysitter was hurt, and 
you know, really kind of, you know, sh shaken and rattled. And so the parents took the children the next day, had them write an apology letter. I thought this was really extra. I'm like, I don't know if I would ever do this to Noah, right? But they had him write an apology letter, took the children to the, to the office of the babysitter, had the children go buy flowers, one by, with, with their children's own money, right? Had them take the flowers and the apology note to the babysitter and apologize one by one. And through that process, when the children figured out what was going to happen, they were like, no. I'd rather, give, I'd rather not play PS2 or 4 or whatever for a week. I'd rather like sit in a corner for a while. Anything but go and confess and apologize to the babysitter. And it's so interesting. Like, none of, No one wants to be wrong. No one wants to come and confess and admit, like, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I did it. Not even children. And I realized, like, this is, this is so true. I, this, is, this happened this past week. I was talking with Erica, and I was, you know, we're trying to sell some stuff on Carousel. And I had arranged to meet someone to sell, like, an iPhone lightning cable. And, you know, it was for, like, 30, 40 Hong Kong dollars. And, you know, it was, like, 30 minutes away, one way. And I was like, okay, you know, I might as well. And I couldn't find it any other time. And then my wife, she was like, why, why, why is, is 30 minutes one way, an hour travel time, is it worth 30, 40 Hong Kong dollars? <laughs> I was like, uh, but I, I, you know, it could work, right? And then so I'm going about my day. And then when that day actually comes, I'm like, you know what? Maybe it's not worth 30, 40 Hong Kong dollars. So I just like, you know, I, I didn't end up going through with the sale. I come back home and, and I'm like, hey, you know, Erica, do you need some dinner? I'll pick up something for you. And I come back and we have dinner. And she's like, did you, did you end up setting the iPhone cable? So, no, I decided to, you know, just cancel it and it wasn't really worth it. And she's like, so I was right. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, so when were you going to tell me that? <laughs> and I, I realized, like, subconsciously, like, there's a desire for me not to be wrong, right? I didn't want to confess. And I don't think that my intention was like, no, I, I can't say that you're right. And, you know, I have this, like, I have this deep, like, you know, bitterness in my heart that you can't ever be right and I can't ever be wrong, right? I don't think my conscience intention is that way. But I realized, like, there's something deep down inside. Even though the smallest things, like a carousel, you know, selling a 30, 40 Hong Kong dollar iPhone cable, where I don't want to admit that, you know what, you are right. I was wrong. Even in that small thing. I was like, what is going on with my mind? <laughs> Why is it that the deep down in my heart, there's so much pride where I'm constantly, there's so, such a deep desire to be correct, a deep desire for me and my actions and things that I do to validate, to justify myself. And I'm wondering how many of us, we struggle with this kind of thing every single day of our lives. There's something in us that so desires not to be wrong or to be right, to justify ourselves, that it hinders us from being humble and recognizing maybe there's someone bigger than us, maybe there's someone more right than us, maybe it's not your wife, maybe it's not your roommate, maybe it's not, but at least God on, his, on the throne, he is correct. He is the most right, he is the most correct in all of our lives. Because by us being right and always trying to justify our, ourselves, then essentially we're saying, God, you're not our king. You're not king of my life. Now, Mark, he contrasts this when Jesus, there's, remember I said there's three challenges or three questions. The last question or challenge is really not almost a challenge at all, but a way that Jesus affirms someone who isn't trying to be right all the time. 
the lone scribe regarding the greatest commandment. He comes and he, he talks with Jesus. He asks him, Rabbi, what's the greatest commandment? And this is very typical when you were traveling with renowned rabbis and Jewish teachers to ask him, how do you summarize the whole Torah? Wait, what is your one thing, right, Sunday celebration? What is your one thing? I want to I judge your one thing. You know, is it correct or not? Now, we don't know exactly what his motives were. We don't know if they were pure, if he was testing Jesus again like the Pharisees were, or if he was genuinely asking to see if this teacher, Jesus, was actually someone that he should learn from or not. And so Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. I'm not going to read it again. He quotes the Shema, which is, you know, loving God with all your heart and might. And, and after Jesus says that, it's very interesting that the scribe responds differently than the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees. Instead of saying, instead of trying to prove himself, instead of trying to justify himself, what does he say? He says, Jesus, you're right. You're correct. And I think we need a little bit of background because what he says is very interesting. He not only says you're correct, but he says to love the Lord your God with you know, all that understanding is far greater than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, that is revolutionary for a scribe to say. That is, that is revolutionary for a scribe to say. The scribe was the one who benefited from all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. He was part of the whole system. That was what his living was based on. He was the one who looked at the, the, the Torah, the, the law in Leviticus and Exodus, and, and he said, okay, you know, in Leviticus where it says, oh, if you have some kind of skin disease, then you need to come to the priest and you have to offer this kind of dove and you know, all this kind of stuff. And a portion of it will go to the people who run the temple and the scribes were connected to that whole system. So for him to say, actually, what Jesus you're saying is better than all the burnt offering sacrifices. He's saying, Jesus, what you're saying is probably more correct than all the things that the scribes have said over the years. He's saying, maybe we got it wrong. Maybe our whole system has something messed up on it. Not that burnt offerings and sacrifices are not correct or not good or not important, but maybe they're not as important as we made it out to be. And so what he's saying is, saying, I'm, I'm not correct. I'm, maybe we're wrong. Maybe all my brethren, all the other scribes, we are, there's something wrong with the way that we're thinking about things. And it's so interesting that it's to this person Jesus says what? You are not far from the kingdom of God. This is the only person he says that to. You are not from far from the kingdom of God by your answer. Why? Because you're not trying to be right. You're not trying to think that you've got everything set in, within your control, within your, your understanding. That you're humble enough to ex admit and accept that maybe there's someone and something greater than you that knows something more than you do. So we have three groups of people that are called hypocrites and quite wrong and one that is close to the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is trying to show us is, is by the attitude that we come to Jesus, is are we trying to be right, or are we acknowledging that Jesus is our king above all things? Now let me ask us, like when someone comes to confront us, when your LCG comes and, and sits down and you know, asks you how you're doing, and not only are they asking you how you're doing, but the conversation starts to go down to more and more questions. What's your first reaction? Why are you asking why five times? I've answered your why so many times. Why are you asking your why? What's in your heart? We get defensive so easily, don't we? Anytime someone challenges our motives, 
because we think our attention is correct. But as soon as anyone tries to poke at it a little bit, we're like, well, what are you talking? Who are you to challenge me? Maybe with someone older, we're a little bit willing to do that. But if our friend does it or if our peer does it, no, nah, no way. You don't got no right to challenge me. You're just, you're, we're the same level, right? And it's really difficult for some of us to have peer accountability because we're not really open to allowing other people to challenge us. I mean, parents, right? How, how difficult is it, is it to hear something from your spouse, to be challenged by your spouse? You don't want to hear it. Like, those of you who are not married yet and you're living with roommates, you think challenging your roommates to clean up is hard. Just imagine if you live with them for all your whole life. And you can't ever, I mean, roommates is a temporary thing. We're like, oh, I'm going to be roommates with them, but eventually it's going to, and you can, you can just kind of ignore it and just hope that it goes away and eventually you're going to move out and, you know, you're going to be done with the problem. With your permanent roommate, you can't do that. And you have to hear those things. And, and par I'm not quite there yet, but I've heard from parents like, oh, it's really humbling when your kids start to expose you. <laughs> and you're saying like, you're, you're telling your other parent friend, oh, yeah, I do this, and your kid's like, no, you don't. And you're like, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> and some of us on the other side, it's not only when we try to prove ourselves when we're right by other people challenging us. I want to ask us, how do we challenge other people? Some of us, we think we're right, and we lord our rightness upon other people. I, I remember those of you who were at the retreat, Dr. Steve was sharing about you know, his relationship and things like that. He, he, he said this between, I think it was an argument with his spouse and some, he said, just because you win every argument doesn't mean you're right. You could be right. You could be right logically and factually, but you could be very wrong relationally. You could, you could bang that person over the head with all the truth in the world, but if you're not doing it in a loving way, you're very un incorrect. You could be trying to teach your family or trying to, you know, trying to do something with you, trying to recognize you, you went through 50 days of freedom, freedom class. And you realize, wow, there's so many generational patterns in my heart. And now I got to go confront my parents with the generational patterns that they put in my life. And now you go and you yell at them and you scream at them, look at all the generational patterns that you put in my life. You're wrong. Go repent. <laughs> How do you think they're going to respond? Not well. And they're, kind of, they're going to probably look at you and you're, you're the same spoiled, judgmental, proud brat that you've been all throughout your life. And think about it. Like, we're, we're leading toward Easter. We're in the seasonal land. Some of us were thinking about, like, oh, I want to try to share the gospel with this person. And here you are thinking that I know the gospel. I know God's love. This person who is so lost needs what I have. And I'm going to try to shove it down their mouths thinking that I'm right and I know what's good. Now, I don't think many of us have that problem. We're, most of us were too afraid because we don't think we know. But some of us, whether it's your family members or people you're really close to, and you, you hit each other over the head thinking that I, I've got this Christian message now and I'm right and I'm correct. And we end up judging people more than loving them. All in the name of trying to be right. And that's really going to hinder us from really seeing Jesus as king. Second thing is not only trying to be right, but don't try to be great. Let's read verse 35 to 44. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? 
David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and at the places of honors at feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite of the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus is now, and Mark is trying to explain how we ought not to try to be great. And he uses three speeches or three judgments of Jesus. So Jesus is now evaluating or putting judgment upon the scribes and also this widow. And judgments don't always have to be bad, but it's just how he's evaluating them. And we're going to look at the two judgments of the scribes because he's essentially saying to the scribes, you're trying to be great when you're not that great. When we look at the scribes, what is, what, are the, what is he asking about the scribes? He's asking, why do the scribes call the Christ the son of David? Now, that's the crux of the way that the scribes were somehow trying to make themselves as, as great. Now, when you think about the Christ, the Christ in that time was, you know, another name for the Messiah. Now, you know, Christ is not Jesus' last name, all right? Can we get on the same page? You know, you know, I'm not like Christ, you know, Christ Jesus, right? It's Jesus Messiah. The word Christos means Messiah. It was, it was the person that the Jews were looking forward to for deliverance. And so Jesus was asking the question, how could the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? And he quotes Psalm 110, to challenge them, because the scribes, they really believed the Messiah would be the descendant of King David, a, a son of David, right? The son, not the literal son, but a descendant in that same line. And he quotes Psalm 110, and it's, you know, exactly the same wording. Psalm 110 is on the screen, verse 1, you know, the Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Now, to understand this, we have to understand what the, the Hebrew, because when we look at Lord, it looks like the Lord said to my Lord, who is the Lord? Lord, Lord, Lord. You know, it's like, is he talking to himself? He's not, okay? So the first Lord is the word Yahweh, which is, which is God, right? The second Lord is the word Adonai, which at that time meant king, or in the interpretation could have meant Messiah. So if we're to translate this into more colloquial, what he's saying is, instead of the Lord says to my Lord, he's saying, God said to the Messiah, or if we understand this is David was the one who is speaking, he's saying, God said to David's Messiah. Okay, so God, if God said this to David's Messiah, then Jesus' question to the scribe is how could, how could David's Messiah also be David's son? That's the question, okay? So we're all we on the same page with that. I know it's, you know, I think the, the people at that time would have understood it pretty quickly, but there's a lot of, you know, wording in that. So the question is, how could David's Messiah also be David's son? And it's interesting to see the response of the crowd, because Jesus never gives the answer. The point is not the answer. And in fact, 
the psalm is very true because Jesus is the son of David. <laughs> Jesus is the Messiah. But people didn't know that yet. And so for the, for the scribes to say that Jesus, uh, the Christ is the son of David, and then verse 37, you know, he kind of poses this question. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his, his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. What is he doing? He's saying, you know what, guys? The scribes aren't as great as you think they are. The scribes don't know. They're not as learned. They're not as knowledgeable. They're not as awesome as they come off to be. Because in order to say that the son of David is the Messiah, you had to piece together different Old Testament passages. You had to really go into Scripture. You had to do all these things to be able to say, I'm learned and you're not. And for the great throng, the great crowd to be like, wow, that is amazing that you're criticizing the scribes. What must the crowd must have felt? They must have felt like the scribes were like, putting themselves on this pedestal thinking that they're greater than everyone else. And we see that confirmed in verses 34, uh, 38 to 40, where he talks about how beware of the scribes who like to walk around in these long robes, and they, they like the best seats, and they are held in high honor and high esteem and long prayers. I want to read that in the message translation to give us a little bit more just real-world context of what it would look like in our day. 38 to 40 in the message translation, he, said, he continued teaching. This is Jesus talking. He says this, Watch out for the religion scholars. They love to walk around in academic gowns, preening in the radiance of public flattery, basking in prominent positions, sitting at the head table of every church function, and all the time they are exploiting the weak and helpless. The longer their prayers, the worse they get, but they'll pay for it in the end. Wow, that, that is... That is, that is exposure and condemnation. Uh, the, the, the scribes who were trying to be great, they're trying to be someone, they're trying to be someone of significance. You know, can you imagine if you were a scribe or this one is the religion scholars, every group photo, you run to the front, sit next to the pastor. Look at me. I'm holy and I'm great and I'm well-learned and I deserve the great places at the head of the table. I deserve all these kind of things. I, I, you are all lesser than me because of all the things that I've done. You are all not as worthy as me, not as holy as me, not as whatever as me because of what I've done. And what are they saying? They're saying, I'm awesome and I'm great because of the, the, the education that I have, the pedigree that I have, the background that I have, the prayers that I've prayed. And I know many of us are like, yeah, I'm not a scribe. Far from a scribe. Religion scholar, that's not me. But how many of us, we put so much emphasis on how much we do or how much we've accomplished. And our worth is so connected to all the things that we have put together, a part of our either spiritual resume or even our, our regular life resume. We somehow think that that amounts to something and that really shows how worthy I am of someone. Like, we all fall into that in some way, shape, or form. I think if you do it spiritually, like this whole idea of spiritual greatness, that, that, I think that's one of the worst. Don't raise your hand. How many of you are sitting there thinking, hmm, man, it would be so great if that other person here was hearing the sermon? In fact, you're probably on WhatsApp texting them. Hey, where are you? Why aren't you here? Why did you come 40 minutes late? Emoji, emoji, sticker, sticker, sticker. Maybe they are here, and you're texting them in that group. You're like, are you listening to this right now? Ha, 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 ha. 
Wake up, I see you nodding off. And we're like, yeah, you need this. Where are you? You should be listening to this. And, and our mindset is like, I don't need this because I've got this certain spirituality, but that other person, they need this. And what does that show about ourselves? It shows that we are proving ourselves by how, quote unquote, spiritual that we are, by the things that we've done, or by the, the, the things that we believe, or the knowledge that we have, and that we are somehow elevating ourselves over other people. Okay, I'm going to be a little bit careful when I say this. How many of you have ever, whether you're serving in a context or you're in leadership, you were listening to a message, and you're like, oh, I've heard this story before. And so you start tuning out. You start working on other stuff. Like, oh, I got this really important life group meeting to lead after church. I've got this really important other thing i got to work on, and I'm just going to work on it because... You know, I got, you know, I've heard this story before. I know, I know the principle. I, I even got the notes. So I got the one thing in advance. So I don't need to listen to it anymore. I've been there. I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not calling any, I've been there. I've been there where I'm like, yeah, I've heard this before. I've, you know, I, I, I can preach. So why do I need to listen to another preacher? It sounds really proud. It sounds really bad, right? It sounds really bad. <laughs> Sounds really bad, right? This is honest confessions, okay? Now, hopefully, you honestly confess to each other, all right? But we all feel that way in some way. But that's it's spiritual pride. It's thinking that we're spiritually somehow greater or bigger than someone, you know? And and it, and it comes out in different ways. You're like, oh, I've been part of campus ministry. I've been part of city ministry for this many years. There's no one that I could really learn from anymore. So what's the point of being here? There's a, I've, been, I've been through this before. I've been to retreats before. I've been to relationships. I've heard of it all before, so why do I need to go? Why, why do I need to participate anymore? Why? Because I know this stuff. I've got it. My life is perfect, and I am the model example. I am like Jesus. Not, I, mean, I, I know none of us are saying that. I know none of us are saying that, but that's the way that we operate. That's the attitude that we have. And if we were to humble ourselves and realize, you know what, I, maybe I'm not that great. It's so interesting how, again, two people could hear the exact same thing and come out with totally different conclusions, totally different attitudes. And I'm wondering if we would not think of ourselves as that great, that experience of that wonderful, that awesome, that maybe we could learn a thing or two. Maybe we could humble ourselves and say, maybe, God, you are speaking about something. Maybe your word is speaking about something. Maybe I, I am in need of help. Maybe I, I do need to learn something from you. Maybe my life isn't as consistent with your word as I think it is. And, and some of us were like, okay, yeah, Pastor Bo, I'm not spiritually great at all. I'm, I'm like the bottom of the bottom, so this whole great thing doesn't really apply to me. It doesn't have to be spiritual greatness. It could be worldly greatness that we pursue after. Like, I think money, and I was sharing this with the leaders yesterday, money is one of the most important things to Jesus' heart. There's any topic that Jesus talks about, money is one of those ones up there. Like you think, like most people like in the church, like lust is like one of those, ooh, like we don't talk about that kind of stuff because it's really bad. But why don't we talk about greed like that? Because Jesus only mentions lust a couple of times in his ministry, but he talks about greed and money over and over and over and over again. Why? It's because he knows the human heart that we don't think that we're greedy. 
We don't think money is something that we're constantly trying to pursue. We're like, no, I'm not that, you know, I'm not that rich. I'm not, my salary's not that high. It's only those people, like the Li Ka-Shings, who are really greedy. So I'm not, I'm not, as long as I'm not there, then I'm, you know, I don't really have to worry about it. How many of us, most of us here in this room are the 95% in the world in terms of economic, socioeconomic kind of place, right? You compare yourself to 95, maybe even 99% of the world, you are in the top 1%. And yet we can't stop getting more. We want that phone upgrade, we want that apartment upgrade, we want that Uber, you know, no longer ta Uber taxi, I'm gonna Uber Uber, Uber Comfort, Uber Black. <laughs> because what, it's nicer, and as soon as you get some of that nice stuff, what, you, you want more, right? We want more. And it's no longer just those things, and it's a status thing, right? Promotions, there's, again, there's nothing wrong with a promotion, please. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with material things. You know, Jesus, he came to earth. He demonstrated that God is concerned about the material world. But the love of those things, the demonstration of those things as status symbols, trying to be great, trying to demonstrate you are great by having these status things, that's the problem. Relationship status upgrade. Right? We're constantly trying to make ourselves better, greater, so that what? We could look better, that we could have status, that we could show off, that we could do all these kind of things. And Jesus is saying, Man, that, that's, that's totally the wrong way. He's telling the scribe, that he's criticizing the scribe, that he, the scribe is spiritual greatness, but it's worldly greatness that's a problem too. Now in contrast, and we'll close with this section, in contrast, he criticizes the scribes, but what does he do with this one lone widow? He affirms her. And it's so interesting how big the contrast is between the scribes and the widow. And I'm going to read verses 41 to 44 again, but I want to highlight a couple words that really shows the contrast. And if it's in the yellow, just read it with me together. It says this. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to, him, said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So interesting. I think he, he uses this language intentionally to contrast that though this widow, she was the smallest, the poorest, the weakest, the meekest, even, even the fact that she was a widow, she was estranged from society. She was the lowest of the lows. That is her, out of the smallest and the weakest, that she was the one who put more in than anyone else. I think that illustrates a huge principle that Jesus is constantly teaching over and over again. Mark 9.35, we read this several weeks ago. He says this, and he sat down and he called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. It's when you are the smallest, the meekest, the worst, the humblest, that you are actually greatest in the kingdom. But it's when we're trying to get all these things for ourselves, trying to pr prove ourselves to be great, trying to, to pad our bank accounts, trying to show off spiritually 
that Jesus is saying, you're going to be last. And so the question has to be, we have to look inside our hearts and ask ourselves, what am I investing in? What am I pursuing after? What do I spend my money and my time on? What is my attention focused on all day? I don't know if any of us, we've really looked at, like, where does my money go to? Like, just look at it. Look at the spread. And someone's like, oh, yeah, it's just food and rent. What kind of food? Oh, yeah. $300, $400 Hong Kong dinners every week, twice a week. Where does our money go to? Oh, yeah, but Pastor Bo, I don't really have anything. The only thing I really have is the scholarship that I'm given. And so I can't really, you know, I've got limits. Oh, but I saw you with that, you know. I didn't see you. Don't worry. I'm not, I'm not watching you. But <laughs> I really, really don't care. But, yeah, yeah, you know, those purchases that you make, that new device that you got, they're all indicators of what it is that we invest in, that what we think makes us great. What we think gives us value or worth or significance. We recently did a budget update at our leadership meeting. And we realized that even though our attendance has grown in the last uh, month or two, I think by 19%. We have more people consistently coming to Sunday celebration every week by 19% than previously. We are more under budget or actually the same under budget as last year. And the question was like, oh, what's the difference between last year and this year? Last year, you remember what, what was happening this time last year? Anyone? COVID, fifth wave. We had the, we were all under lockdown. We were Zooming in together, doing all this kind of stuff. We didn't have an in-person retreat. Oh, this year we had a retreat, oh! Oh, yeah. How many of us, we had a great time at the retreat? Amen? Okay, amen, yeah. How many of us, we experienced God at the retreat? Amen? How many of us, we were so blessed and God really poured into us at the retreat? Amen? Okay, how many of us, we gave as a response to that? Amen? Isn't it ironic? It's really ironic that when we are filled, what do we end up spending stuff on ourselves rather than on God's kingdom? God is not our king. We're truly trying to pat ourselves, make ourselves great, rather than God is great. God is king, and everything about my life goes to him. And, and the, you know, this is the amazing part. It's like Jesus humbles and exposes us, and he makes us feel uncomfortable, but at the same time, he really creates the whole solution. The, 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 you know, I don't know why I'm thinking about this, like Sudoku. He, he solves it for us. All at the same time, he exposes our sin. He makes us feel terrible and guilty all at the same time. But yet he says, but yet I have done all these things for you because you are never capable to never make it about yourself. And in fact, yes, even though anyone who would be first must be last of all, and we are always making ourselves first, Jesus was the one who said, I'm going to make myself last. I'm going to make myself last so that you can experience the joy of God's kingdom so that you can experience the joy of entering into this hope, this gospel message. Philippians 2, verse 6 to 11, this is what it says. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was the one who made himself last. He gave up his rightness. He gave up his greatness so that what? So that we could have life. That's the, that's the paradox of the gospel. Is that yes, we're broken. We're, we're, we, we're constantly proud. We constantly try to make ourselves right. We try, constantly try to make ourselves great. And he's saying that's wrong. That's not the right way. That, that doesn't put Jesus as king. And even though we don't make Jesus king, what does he do? He serves us. He dies for us. He's saying, you don't make Jesus king when you should have, and you're so messed up, and you're so, so broken, and you're so sinful, but I'm still going to die for you. I'm still going to humble myself for you. Well, what? Name a person, name a thing, name anything in this world that does that. No one does that. No other God, no other religion will come and say, you've messed up, you've fallen so far short of everything right, but yet there's a God that will still die for you and still love you. Why would we not want to make that kind of God our king of our lives? Why would we not want our whole lives to be filled with that person, that God, in everything that we do? To say, God, you are my focus, you are my everything, you are, you are, thro you are, you are throne, I want that to be my heart. I want to follow you to the ends of the earth because there's no one like you. I pray that that would be our response to say, God, I want to. There's no greater love, no greater demonstration of the gospel than through Jesus Christ. And that's the only king I want in my life. That's why only when Jesus is king of your life will you be close to the kingdom of God. And a couple of next steps for us. I just want to reinforce the four hours of transformation that some of us, we know that we've covered previously in, in other sermons. We did this during the 50 Days of Freedom. I, I just really want to contextualize it for this message here. Uh, we know the realize, repent, receive, recommit. The first one is just realize when you often try to be right or great. Think of specific times or moments where you've been defensive, where you've been trying to invest in things for yourself, trying to prove your own worth, trying to prove your own image trying to guard your own little kingdom. Those are the times that maybe God is trying to expose or highlight in our lives. We've got to realize that to start. Second thing is repent and turn to Jesus as your king. When you realize that, oh God, I've been trying to be right for myself or great for myself, then it causes us to say, God, maybe this isn't right. I, I want to turn around. I want to turn away from that. I see Jesus as this king but I'm not really living it. So God, help me to make you my king. Repent. Ask for help. The process of repentance is, is admitting that and, and saying, God, I need you. Third is receive. Receive Jesus' forgiveness and mercy. He doesn't leave you hanging. He humbles himself. He says, come, child, with me. He says, come into my arms. My mercy is new every morning. My forgiveness is permanent. You don't have to keep doing more things in order to earn it. It's free. It's available for you every single day. 
And lastly is recommit to living under Jesus' kingdom values. We don't just sit here and be like, oh, you know, now I'm happy that God has forgiven me and now I no longer have guilt. If you've really experienced genuine love, there, there's, a, there's a natural compulsion, a deep desire to say, God, then teach me your way. How, how ought I to live? How ought I to relate to other people? How, how ought I to be challenged and humble in the process? How, ought I, how should I use my talents, the, the things that you've given me for your purposes, for your kingdom? And recommit to that, whatever that looks like. And this is a cycle over and over and over. We do this every day, every moment that we realize we've been trying to be right, trying to be great. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.